Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about bachelorette parties. Last episode we talked about engagement rings. In the previous episode we talked about gay marriage. Yes, we do have marriage on the mind. Not because either one of us is about to walk down the aisle, but because it's that wedding. we know of. Yeah, that we know of. But because it is wedding season and surprisingly, bachelorette parties have a very interesting history and very stuff mom never told you ish history. That's right. And I let me say, I was totally surprised that bachelorette party history is so brief. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of a new thing. The The bachelorette party that you think of today is pretty new. Um, I actually, uh, I, I threw a bachelorette party a couple years ago. Yeah. How'd, it, how'd uh, it go? It was, uh, it was kind of depressing. Why? I'm going Be- to tell you. Well, I think, uh, the important thing, and, and I feel like etiquette guides tell you this, when you plan a bachelorette party, you have to plan it with the bride in mind, which seems obvious, but if your bride is like a total party girl, you should have a big party type of thing or a pub crawl or whatever. But if your bride is quieter and maybe just like the girls get away kind of bride, maybe you shouldn't plan a pub crawl. Did you plan a pub crawl? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. And uh the the fellow women who, you know, we all had dinner first and then we started the pub crawl. They all just started to like disappear. So by the time we were at like the third or fourth bar, it was pretty much just the bridesmaids and the bride. And let me tell you, she was not having a good time because she was basically, I don't know if she was feeling bad that all those ladies left. But I think what she really wanted was like, let's just drink with my girls and, you know, have some champagne and a good time. So we got a cab. We went back to the hotel. We drank some champagne and put on a stupid 80s movie. And that was the most fun part of the night. That sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah, I, I planned one, uh, last year, in fact, for one of my best friends, and it was a lot of fun. It was very cold mm-hmm. when it happened, and we did a pub crawl as well, um, which, uh, ended with us almost being asked to leave an establishment. <laughs> Not because we were so rowdy, but because I bought everybody whistles. <laughs> and even though we knew some of the people who were working at this bar, uh, and that's really the only reason we didn't get kicked out, because, you know, we wanted to make an entrance for, for the bride-to-be, and, and I could just see the bar, nope, nope, go out, turn around. Yeah, and, and whistles indoors, not Were they penis-shaped whistles? They were not penis-shaped whistles, but we did have... Um, oh, we did, I made cocktails for everyone beforehand and there were penis, uh, stirrers, cocktail stirrers. There you go. Yeah. We kept it classy-ish. But speaking of that penis paraphernalia, that kind of stuff is very new to the bachelorette culture. Mm -hmm. And according to a prominent bachelorette scholar, yes, there is one, (laughs) it says a lot about our sexual mores, and gender equity. But first, 
a brief historical word on bridesmaids, because surprisingly, there's not a ton of history on bridesmaids. There's this idea that it goes back to ancient Rome when some brides to be would have been accompanied by a ton of bridesmaids all dressed identically to try to trip up any evil spirits that might try to whisk her away mm-hmm. or kidnappers who might try to whisk her away. <laughs> right. So bridesmaids were, I guess, sort of like bodyguards at first. Yeah, but that whole spirit uh, superstition carried through for quite a while, all, all the way through to 19th century England, because if you look at some Victorian era wedding photographs, you can't even tell which one is the bride and which one is the bridesmaid. Yeah, and, and that's why I don't understand why people get upset when I just wear wedding dresses to weddings. <laughs> you know? Sorry, I look so good in white. I and can't, I you're can't help just, it. You're just doing it for the bride. <laughs> you know? You're protecting her. I don't actually do that, just to clarify. Um, but bachelor parties have ancient roots. Uh, the, the often cited historical precedent to the modern-day bachelor party is 5th century B.C. Sparta. Sparta! Where soldiers would hold a dinner in the groom-to-be's honor and toast him. But yeah, I mean, it didn't stay that classy for long. Uh, things things did get a little rowdier over time. In 1896, I'd never, I mean, I, I don't know why I would have heard this, but I had never heard this. Uh, P.T. Barnum's grandson, Herbert Barnum Seeley, threw a stag party that ended up getting raided by the cops because of rumors that a belly dancer would be making a nude appearance. Uh-oh. Yeah, and in 1922, the term bachelor party is used for the first time in a Scottish publication, Chambers Journal of Literature, Science, and Arts, to describe a jolly old party. So we have, we, we've got that whole culture already established mm-hmm. by 1922. And then in 1984, pop culture-wise, we have the first movie devoted to this pre-wedding debauchery, appropriately called Bachelor Party. Yeah, but it's Tom Hanks, so yeah, I've never seen it, but you know it's going to be sweet. It is going to end up sweet. Um, but but the whole idea, though, as to why bachelor parties have this extensive history is that we have long accepted that... Men want to sow their wild oats and they are more at liberty to have sex before marriage and tomcat right. around and, and do as men are want to do. That whole notion that, that it's simply in men's natures to be, uh, you know, sex fiends. Right. I mean, I think the idea and, and, uh, that, that bachelorette party scholar you mentioned, Beth Montemuro, brings it up that there's an idea that men are really giving something up yes. when they get married, whereas women are gaining something incredible, like a life. Finally, I have a life because I have a man. And so that that is sort of what all of this hinges on, because men get to have that rowdy bachelor party to say goodbye to their days of freedom. Women, however... They tend to get bridal showers. Well, yeah, I mean, because for a long, long, long time throughout that history of, you know, the extensive history of the bachelor party, the economic aspiration for a woman was limited to being a wife and mother. So it makes sense that the bridal shower is, is has been the go-to thing for so long. Uh, it actually goes back to 16th and 17th century Holland, and the origin story is that there was a woman who wanted to marry a poor guy, and so neighbors showered her with household gifts because her father was like, no, you're not going to marry this poor dude. And her neighbors were like, oh, we shall help you. <laughs> 
We we will give you this ye old KitchenAid mixer. I know, and I, unfortunately I can't do a, a Dutch accent. But um, in the late 19th century, bridal showers became routine for wealthier women in the United States, which were focused around preparing them for their housewifey duties. This was also around the time that you have the cult of domesticity and the rise of consumerism, which melded together nicely. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, around this time also you have things like hope chests. And trousseaus, which the bride's family would fill with linens and, and dishes and stuff so she could bring that into the marriage. I actually have a friend whose little sister, uh, her parents had been uh, filling this hope chest uh, for her for years, but the parents didn't do it for my friend. Because they were so convinced that the little sister would get married and the older sister would not. Why would they be filling a hope chest to begin with? What did they put inside of it? Very traditional Southern family. Uh, literally like uh, uh, stuff from the grandmother to uh-huh. get passed down. So like fine china, fine silver, fine linens, all of that stuff. My mom does have a silver tea service waiting for me. And it has been waiting for me for years. And almost any time I see her... She asked me if I want to want to take my til- silver tea service home, and I and I I'm putting it off. Yeah, well, my mom says that I have a mink coat waiting for me. Whoa. Yeah, I said that I'm going to attach a bear head to it and put it on the floor like a rug. There you go. It doesn't even need a bear head. Just go ahead and toss that thing down. Call it a day. Uh, but that that idea though of women filling the hope chest is because traditionally men were expected to buy the house and the land, whereas women would provide the soft. Goods And before traditional bridal showers where you might bring gifts Mm -hmm. for less wealthy women, there were kind of sweet traditions, I think, of the a lot of women getting together to do things like sew the new monogram on sheets and linens, uh, maybe get together to help make a new quilt for a bed. Um, Lots of these different kinds of, again, very domestic oriented pre-wedding traditions for women. But it was 100% structured, of course, around men as the breadwinner and the head of household. There was even one game uh, that was, I guess, more taking place in the uh, first half of the 20th century where a hostess would hide trinkets in cakes that would be given to any unmarried women who would attend a bridal shower. And these trinkets would symbolize what their future husband's professions might be. So kind of like a precursor to playing MASH. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed for the stethoscope. Oh, Lord. All right. Well, today, 83% of modern brides still have those bridal showers, even though there's kind of a shift in how we view them, even though it's more like just based on tradition versus I really, really want a bridal shower where they feed me uh, cucumber sandwiches and tea. What are you saying you do want that? Because I could go for a cucumber sandwich. I mean, I could go. Haven't we established that I could go for a sandwich at any time? That's true. That's true. And it was Penn State sociologist Beth Monomura, who we've already mentioned a couple of times, the, the bachelorette party scholar, uh, who who is the one who said that brides are holding these showers because of pressures placed on them by earlier generations. Yeah, but while 83% of modern brides ha- still have the showers, almost as many, 77%, also have the bachelorette party. Because, you know, the bridal shower is what you invite your mom to, your mm-hmm. your, your soon-to-be mother-in-law, perhaps. That's the, the calm party. And then you have the wild bachelorette. And But it wasn't until the 1960s that we even have 
anything like a bachelorette party start to happen, thanks, Monomero says, to things like the sexual revolution and birth control. But the history of bachelorette parties in the UK is a little bit older. Um, the term hen party dates back to the 1800s, but that was just referring to a gathering of ladies. <laughs> any any gathering of women. Oh, how charming. That's so dismissive. So we, we're having a hen party. Oh, I guess you probably need more than two yeah. women to form a hen party. Anywho. So in 1976, though, the Times used hen party for the first time in the pre-wedding sense. So a little bit sooner than we're going to see the rise of the term bachelor party in the United States. But even before the the term hen party was used as as we would think of it in reference to something like a bachelorette party, there were similar traditions already happening, such as uh, female industrial workers would get pranked on their last days of working at the factory, for instance, uh, before they got married, because the expectation was they were going to get married and then, you know, leave work. Yeah, but before be Richard Gere came in to carry them out of the factory. That's true. Never mind, just a reference to a movie I've seen a thousand times. But all of this kind of grew out of, before the 60s, uh, the personal showers, which were somewhere in between the bridal showers and the bachelorette parties. It wasn't with your extended family and your mom and your aunt and your grandmother. It was with your close friends because those were the parties like in the 50s where the bride would get lingerie and other things she didn't necessarily want to open in front of extended family. But they were still subdued. Uh, they were at people's houses. So it's it's kind of that in-between stage before we get into the full, big body bachelorette parties. And speaking of the full, big body bachelorette parties, uh, something old, something bold. Bridal Showers and Bachelorette Parties by Beth Montemurro is our major source for all of this, by the way, because she's really the only person who's taken a deep scholarly dive into this culture. And she says that in the 1980s, Bachelorette Parties were more about cementing friendships before that transition into marriage. And there were a couple of scholars here and there who hinted at Bachelorette traditions. For instance, in 1982, we have Paula L. Dressel and David Peterson who are studying male strippers. And they mentioned that some women would see male strippers as a part of their celebrations of upcoming marriages. Right. But it wasn't until 1985 that researcher Rebecca Clark uses the term bachelorette party to describe what motivated women's attendance at one of these particular clubs. And she writes about how media coverage at this time in the 80s and 90s really treated bachelorette parties like something novel, foreign and crazy. Like, can you believe what women are doing? And uh, in 1988, Richard Roper of Ebert and Roper fame uh, he wrote an article for the Chicago Sun-Times that really signaled a shift in how the media talked about bachelorette parties. It was the first one to really explain it as a so- social ritual, not something subdued and like, well, let's have a shower and then go out for drinks, y'all. It was really kind of signaling the shift that it was moving before that or beyond that into actual pre-planned nights of debauchery. Well, I was surprised that it wasn't until 1998, I believe, that the term pops up in Cosmo. I would yeah. assume I, I would have assumed that Cosmo would be all over that. Absolutely. Um, and then I found it funny that in 2002, not so long ago, there was a Wall Street Journal cover story about how bachelorette parties were getting super raunchy while bachelor parties were simultaneously steering away from strip clubs. And they attributed it to shifting gender roles 
in the workplace. Well, yeah, I mean, gender roles and feminism definitely came up. And around the same time as that Wall Street Journal article, there was a shift in describing them as feminist activities. Like we are taking the bull by the horns and we are going out as women. And a lot of these articles, the shift in tone, it started to describe women of the millennium as asserting equality and demonstrating their ability to flaunt their sexuality. And so parties are starting to move more into the public places, getting more elaborate and expensive, just at the same time as the cost of weddings is shooting up. So as we're getting bigger weddings, we're also getting bigger, more ritualized pre-wedding activities. Yeah, and you could say that all of this just ties into the commodification of American weddings that now cost on average around $28,000 because now you have for bachelorette parties all of this penis paraphernalia available to buy, for instance. You have things like destination bachelorette parties uh, th- that you can spend so much money on. Um, there's also, uh, for instance, speaking of merchandise, According to the knot.com, do you want to hear the, the seven bachelorette essentials? Heck Carolyn? yeah. Well, you gotta have a headpiece for the bride, a dare list, a suck for a buck accessory. Sorry, I had to say that on a podcast, <laughs> but essentially it's like a, you wear a candy necklace and a strange men can pay oh. you a dollar to bite a piece off. I don't like that at all. Or you can make your own. It's suggested by taping candies to a shirt. That should I wear. can I just put a cheeseburger on a necklace? And oh, that would be my that'll, that. See, it's all about creating your own rituals, Kristen. Berg for a buck. Berg for a buck. Uh, you also need naughty accessories, a blow up doll, penis paraphernalia, of course. And th- just to show how dated this <laughs> article is, disposable cameras. Yeah, you don't want to have that file lingering on your computer, so you need a or, or camera. drunk Facebook posting, right. I guess. Well, no, the last bachelorette party I went to was not only a destination bachelorette party, sort of. It was in Athens, so it involved leaving Atlanta. But there were a lot of women coming in from, like, Texas and all over the place. Uh, but, yeah, there were penis cookies. So, and yeah. I, you know, it's a thing. I've seen many a, a, a penis cake on the internet, no, wow, not, not that I, not that I'm going looking for them. I, in my, let me clarify, in my research on bachelorette parties, I saw many photos of penis-shaped cakes. Uh, so, but what does what does all of this mean, though, Caroline? Because Montemurro says that there is a deeper meaning to these penis whistles and such. She says that bachelorette parties and bridal showers are not just women's parties. They are rituals of status, consumption and materialism, of transition and ambivalence, of friendship and reinforcement of relationships among women, and of transformation. Yeah, and and she does write also about what it means for the transformation of sexual attitudes and morals and mores and, and, you know, gender norms and all of that stuff. She writes that the very existence of the bachelorette party is evidence that women have made some real inroads as far as gender equality. Interesting. Uh, she said men had bachelor parties because they were about to be trapped. So this is the same thing we talked about, that now maybe this shows that women, hey, if we're going to talk about losing things like losing freedom, maybe women are losing their sexual freedom, too. And so she says, as the sexual double standard lost some of its power and as women's rights and freedoms became more pronounced, 
It has become more socially acceptable for women to acknowledge that they, too, are entitled to a last night of freedom. And yet, though, about all of that penis paraphernalia, um, she says that... They're actually symbolic of a contradictory role that a bride is forced to play. She says, within hours of the bachelorette party ending, she'll morph from body bachelorette to blushing virginal bride. And it's it's funny, the the discussion, these super serious discussion of women going to male strip clubs and and what it means and and so Montemoreau says that it though not necessarily consciously uh, many women who end up at male strip clubs tend to be making fun of the idea that men feel it necessary to have a last night of freedom that involves porn and strip clubs and author Jacqueline Geller echoes that she says that the bachelorette party is a gesture of retaliation rather than an actual sensual adventure It's answering almost an imagined insult rather than responding to the bachelor party's text of lewd sexuality rather than its subtext lamenting lost friendship. Yeah. For instance, the the bachelorette party that I helped plan for my best friend did not include any male strippers or male strip club or anything like that. A, because she would have been not happy about that and and because it just wasn't necessary. Right. You know, now one thing, though, that uh, we we really didn't look into at all, but is something that came up when I was listening to um, an episode of Savage Love not too long ago. There was a caller talking about how it was a gay guy calling in complaining about bachelorette parties coming into gay bars and gay strip clubs and tearing the place up Mm -hmm. and essentially saying that these women need to respect these spaces, that it's not so kosher for you to just waltz in, blowing your penis whistles Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, disturbing their Friday night out or whatever. And I know for a fact, actually, that here in Atlanta, speaking of male strip clubs, there is a gay male strip club that if you are a woman, you are not going to be let in with a group of women because they pretty much have a policy against bachelorette parties. Because I do, I agree with the idea that, you know what, your bachelorette party is not your one night to go be obnoxious at a gay bar. Well, it's not your one night to be obnoxious anywhere, honestly. I think you can, I think it's possible to have a bachelorette party and not annoy the crap out of everyone around you. But I do think that bachelorette parties especially do take more license saying it would be, oh, it's totally fine. It'll be fun. We'll just go and uh, go to a gay bar and, and, you know, all the men will find us fabulous. And I, and just for women out there, I think that maybe you need to take a second thought about respecting, uh, respecting their spaces. Just like we wouldn't probably want, uh, well, I don't know, any bar. I wouldn't really want a bachelorette party to come in and try to take over the place. So right. just something to think about. Yeah, well, then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, so as they're hooting and hollering in all these public spaces, what else are they doing? They're drinking. They are drinking. I was surprised at the number of studies on bachelorette parties and alcohol and the concern over it and and the seeming surprise over how much women are drinking at these parties. Well, but I mean, I don't think it's so shocking. I mean, I think any surprise expressed is sort of maybe not genuine or maybe it's I think it's weird that they're surprised that at something like a bachelorette party where you are already stepping outside of normal behavior, um, 
that 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 you would be drinking a lot. Well, speaking of norms, uh, in changing gender norms for alcohol consumption, social drinking, and lowered inhibition at bachelorette parties, uh, the authors concluded that women's use of alcohol in this ritual challenges existing gender norms and conceptions of masculinity and femininity. So the drinking, in a way, is simply an extension of doing the things like being uh, overtly sexual by wearing a uh, Penis necklaces and having asking men to pay a dollar to bite candy off of a necklace and uh, going to a strip club, etc. Yeah, and according to a uh, May 2013 study in the Journal of Substance Abuse, uh, they, they really do talk about like, oh, there's so much drinking, saying that 80% of women in these bachelorette parties reported drinking an average of five drinks over the course of the night. And I understand what the definition of binge drinking is. And that is it. <laughs> yes. But I kind of feel like, uh, you know, I, I think that maybe a one night, a one off at a bachelorette party. Is that so terrible? I mean, unless it's leading to awful behavior that puts you in an unsafe position. Mm hmm. Well, and I guess, I guess a scholar would just say, well, why is that ritual so specifically attached to Bachelorette? Because, you know, I, I think, and I, I would be curious to hear from listeners on this, I think that the, the emerging stereotype for Bachelorette parties is more of a pr- pub crawl kind of thing mm-hmm. where you go out and you are going to binge drink. And for guys, when I think of a Bachelor party these days, yeah, you have the hangover mm-hmm. and the hangover part two. And the hangover part three. No. Um, but I imagine guys doing things like drinking some scotch and smoking cigars in one place. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't think of that. I mean, I guess I still think of like the traditional like go out and get shwasted. Apparently, I have a very aristocratic idea. Uh, well, parties. I don't know. Maybe your dude friends are more sophisticated than mine. Uh, I don't know. I, I I feel like almost there's there's a touch of overcompensation in a way uh, with with bachelorette parties where it's like we go so far so far out because obviously there's the whole stripper aspect that's you know stereotypical. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm so curious to hear from listeners on this one. Are bachelorette parties a symbol of, uh, gender and sexual equality and, and a sign of good things? Um, or are they just, uh, a night of frivolous excess? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, it's interesting. Some of the things we read, talked about girls nights and girls like trips to a mountain cabin as something really subdued and like ugh you know whereas the party with the penis necklaces and all the cocktails is is the fancy fun thing to do and it's like well again like i said at the beginning i mean you you kind of have to take into account what the bride wants what's her personality right you know what 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 group of friends are you getting together yeah and what will they want to do and i had a great time at my at my best friends we we all had a really fun time and it was just enough not too much it ended with a lot of pizza <laughs> which was great um so I, i'm definitely not against the ritual at all, uh, but it's it's compelling to stop and think of where did all of this come from? Birth control, baby. Birth control. 
<laughs> and with that, listeners, we want to hear from you. Uh, anyone planning a bachelorette party or any brides-to-be nervous about the bachelorette party? Grooms as well. Do you think that at this point bachelorette parties are getting wilder than bachelor parties? All of these thoughts we want to hear. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also drop us a line on Facebook or tweet us at Podcast. And we got a couple of your letters to share when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to some letters. Kristen, I have one here from Jared. He's writing in about our bedwetting episode. Uh, he says, first off, allow me to say that I greatly enjoy the show. Thank you, Jared. Uh, he says, I was a chronic bedwetter, and while the exact number of times per week escapes me now, I do remember it as being quite frequent. Not drinking much, double voiding, none of the simple tricks helped me at all. I must admit, though, my primary problem with wetting the bed was that I was an extremely heavy sleeper. As such, while the alarm I had would eventually wake me up, it was normally much too late for me to do anything but change the sheets or reposition myself to sleep in the least wet part. Urology appointments and even bladder x-rays found nothing amiss. I was just programmed to sleep deeply and wet the bed. I did eventually get a hormone spray that I shot up my nose at night, and this helped somewhat, but I off and on wet the bed until 7th grade. Then my body finally stopped me from the endless embarrassment of waking up to soggy sheets. I do not miss the crinkling of the plastic sheets I used to protect my mattress or the embarrassment of the first time I had a friend over and realized that I had stripped the bed that morning to leave only the plastic behind. Now, strangely, I'm a very light sleeper. Perhaps life is having a fickle sense of humor. So thanks, Jared. And I've got an email here from Chris. Subject line, a trans perspective on your video, The Science of Bitchy Resting Face. Um, that's in reference to a recent YouTube video over at youtube.com slash stuff. Mom never told you. And Chris writes, as I mentioned, I'm trans. And for me, this means that I have been perceived by others as both male and female at different times in my life. Your points about women's experiences are exactly in line with what I've experienced. But I also wanted to add some interesting aspects of what I've experienced when I've been perceived as a man. While women are expected in pressure to emote constantly and generally in a positive manner, men are conversely expected and also actively pressured to not emote in a positive manner, especially through facial expression and body posture, unless they are being a funny caricature or something similar. In my experience, one consequence of the squashed masculine positive emoting is actually muted experience of positive emotion. I guess that the mechanism behind this is sort of an inverse of the well-known feedback between emotional facial expression and experience of emotion. While it is clearly unfair to use a certain class of person to prop up others' emotional security, as our patriarchal society uses women sometimes, it is also unfair to rob another class of people of the full richness of emotional experience. Basically, the patriarchy screws us all, and everyone, men, women, gender queers, etc., should be a feminist if they want the most out of life. So thanks, Chris, for sharing that perspective. And thanks to everybody who's written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and on Tumblr as well at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And like I said, we are on YouTube. You can head over and watch The Science of Bitchy Resting Face and many more videos at YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And don't forget to be a friend and subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 